This is Ryan Martin, the host of Psychology and Stuff. Now, if you're listening to this podcast, it's probably because you like psychology. And if you like psychology, you will love All the Rage, the podcast on anger and violence out of Phoenix Studios. On All the Rage, my co-host Chuck Ryback and I talk about everything from internet trolls to toxic masculinity to road rage. We bring you mad science, anger management tips, and tons of stories about people losing their cool. You can learn more about All the Rage and other Phoenix Studios podcasts at uwgb.edu forward slash podcast. All right, and welcome to Psychology and Stuff, the podcast of the University of Wisconsin Green Bay Psychology Program. I'm Ryan Martin, chair of the psychology program and host of Psychology and Stuff. And today we're going to talk about the psychological and physical health consequences of racism. And we're going to do that with a Psychology and Stuff all-star. But first, I want to remind you that you can get involved in the Psychology and Stuff conversation by following us on Facebook uh, if you go to Psychology and Stuff or Twitter if you go at Psych and Stuff. Uh, there's a lot of great uh, information there about the show, but also psychology more generally. Plus, we take requests. So if there's some topic you want to hear about, um, that is a good way to let us know. I also want to say that we're now available via Stitcher, along with a lot of other great Phoenix Studios podcasts. So if you use Stitcher uh, or the app Stitcher, uh, you can find us there. Thank you, Stitcher. And that brings us to our guest for today. He's a good friend of the show, having made several appearances in the last few years. Uh, he is a health psychologist who's authored books on topics ranging from culture, development, and health to the teaching of psychology. He's a fabulous researcher, a fabulous teacher, having just won the coveted Charles L. Brewer Distinguished Teaching of Psychology Award, and he's also a pretty good friend. Welcome, Dr. Regan A.R. Garong. Thank you, Ryan. Yeah, how are you? Super to be here. Yeah, yeah. This, I think this is the first time in a little bit that you've it been ha- here. It has been. It's been a... Well, Slight hiatus. Well, welcome That's back. Right. Thank you. It's, Thank it's you. good to have you in the in the studio. So, um, Regan, you actually brought this work to my attention. Essentially, last fall, we were talking about uh, mm-hmm. actually the, the Virtual Psychology Museum. Yep, There's going to exactly. be a health psych exhibit opening relatively soon. Exciting. And uh, we were talking about uh, what could go in that exhibit, and you mentioned an article that was in the New York Times that described the physical health consequences of racism. So can you break that article down for us? I, I should say the name, by the way. It's, ti- it's titled, We're Sick of Racism, Literally. It's by Douglas Jacobs, and it was in the November 2017, around there-ish. So can you break that article sure. down for and, us? And I think let's, let's start with the title, because the, the whole notion of racism makes me sick. I think when you think about, oh, the, the phrase, racism makes me sick, uh, I think there are many of us who, when we see somebody being ra- racist or somebody being prejudicial, it makes us upset. It goes, oh, I hate to see that. That's not who we are. That's not what America is and so on and so forth. But that general sense of it makes me sick is is much more of an affective experience mm-hmm. when people use that phrase. And I think what that article did a, a really wonderful job of highlighting is that it's more than just affective. It's actually physical sickness where over the long term, if somebody experiences racism, if somebody experiences prejudice, uh, that is can make them sick at a very physical level. So uh, the bottom line and this, uh, you know, I'm sure I'll, I'll circle back to this often, is that discrimination is a stressor. So 
if somebody feels discriminated against, if somebody is repeatedly discriminated against, that is the equivalent of repeated stressors against their body that then shows up in all the ways that we normally measure stress. So the moment you make that link between racism and discrimination as a stressor, you can then look at all standard measures of stressors and lo and behold, bam, there it is. People who are stressed show all the markers of people who are stressed. So let's then, um, let's actually back up and get very, very basic for people. Because one, even though we've had you on the show to talk about health psych before, we haven't necessarily explored this link between stress and physical health. Right. So, so uh, you know, ignoring the right. types of stressors sure. for now, how do... Uh, how do stressors affect our physical health? So at the most fundamental level, you've got to think about what happens when you get stressed, right? And I'm going to back it up even further because it's going to relate to this notion. Uh, although there are some stressors that everybody can agree on as our stressors, for example, here's this car careening towards us. That's a stressor. I mean, it's not going to be, oh, it's not a stressor to me. No, it's a stressor to everybody. Here's this car coming at you. Okay, wild animal running to you. That's a stressor for everybody. Uh, but in this day and age, when there are uh, starkly different physical stressors than they were to perhaps our ancestors, stress now becomes much more of a mental component. So to, to paraphrase Shakespeare, uh, there is nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. So even in our day-to-day -day lives here, to a large extent, if I think something is a stressor, it is a stressor. So that's really important to, me to mention that there's some cognitive work that goes on. That cognitive work can be either automatic or it can be conscious, so conscious or non-conscious. And when we get to that point of we are stressed, that's when we start talking about the physiological level, right? Okay. So there's this cognitive stuff that's going on, and accompanying that cognitive stuff is at the heart of it an activation of the sympathetic nervous system. Right. Okay. So central nervous system, um, autonomic nervous system, two, the two big parts here are sympathetic, parasympathetic. Mm -hmm. All right. And a nice way to think about it is the sympathetic nervous system gets us ready for action. The parasympathetic nervous system calms us down. So to get us ready for action, what the sympathetic nervous system does is it speeds up heart rate. Right. I mean, basically, it, it does everything that gets us ready to deal with stress. This, Spe is, yeah. this is what people would call the fight or flight. The, fi the fight or flight response. And now gotcha. that's really modified to fight, flee or freeze. Uh, right. Okay. That's been the new add on is fight. Behavioral and, inhibition. Well, let me right. tell you. Yeah. you know, exactly. You're, you're <laughs> just frozen. There's nothing you can do. Right. But what's cool here is that the moment uh, the sympathetic nervous system is activated, your heart rate is going up. Right, so the heart's beating faster, your your breathing is getting going faster, so that you're getting more oxygen into the system. The blood's beating faster, the heart's beating faster to get your blood circulation to get that oxygen to your muscles, and there's a whole bunch of you know breaking down of stuff to give you your body energy. Now the this is important. How does what's going on here? Well, you, you you see that there are two. There's an increase in three major chemicals actually: uh, cortisol, uh, epinephrine, and norepinephrine. Right, And all of this is driven by the sympathetic nervous system. And this really answers or gets to the answer of your question, which is what's going on physiologically. So these systems are activated. It's releasing more of these neurochemicals. And if we really were coping with stre the stressor, like in the old days, running away from an animal, all those chemicals would have helped. More cortisol, more epinephrine, more norepinephrine, super, gets us ready for action. But most of our stresses nowadays are mental. So we don't have to run away from this animal. 
but our body is being pumped with all those chemicals to prepare us to do so. So what's happening because we don't need to run is we're sitting down and all that cortisol is going through our system. And as the more cortisol we have through our system, that in time can lead to blood pressure problems and a whole range of physical problems. So that's the, in a nutshell, is the physiology of stress. And whereas all that physiological stuff would have protected us in the old days, now it hurts us. So if we are sitting around being stressed all the time, thinking about stress or thinking about things that make us stressed, we are essentially pumping ourselves up with these chemicals that it will hurt us if we don't deal with it. Mm-hmm. And that's where we make that connection to discrimination and prejudice. If there is someone who is constantly being discriminated against, mm-hmm. they're essentially experiencing higher levels of all these stress chemicals, higher sympathetic nervous system activation than somebody who's not. And I think that's the scary thing right there is it's not just, oh, that's not PC. No, not PC is the least of the issue. It's the fact that now you're actually, you know, changing physiology. And so, and I want to unpack some of the research in a moment, but I do want to take, so following that logic, it's not a stretch. Now, granted, this isn't what the article is about or even what the podcast is about necessarily today, but it wouldn't be a stretch at all to say that the exact same thing is true of sexism, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. And as I was thinking about this, I'm thinking, no, absolutely. If you're discriminated against because of your sex or your sexual orientation, Mm -hmm. you are being stressed. Mm -hmm. And so the bottom line here, which is fascinating to me as a stress researcher, is uh, here are things that are stressors that we didn't really consider stressors. Mm-hmm. Now, when I say we didn't really, I mean more the everyday person didn't. Right. Health psychology has known that racism is a is a stressor for quite some time. Uh, you know, there's institutional racism. The effects of discrimination and institutional racism is well studied in health psychology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually, some of the studies in that article, one of the earliest ones was a 2001 health psych article. So health, we health psychologists know that. But I don't think the everyday person thinks about uh, racism and sexism mm-hmm. as a potential stressor. And the moment you do, you go, wow, it's really opening uh, many of us up to uh, health problems that we didn't anticipate before. So how do how do they do this research? And I, I'm not going to, uh, because I didn't put in this request in advance, I'm not going to ask you to pull specific citations, but if you have them, that'd be great. Um, but what? how do we do uh, some of this research on, or how have people done this? Yeah, so... Because I'm anal, I did think about yes. some citations. Uh, but <laughs> so when you think about this, of course, you know, and, and as a slight parallel here, research methods, people, here's some good stuff. You can do this correlationally, right? Look at the people who've experienced uh, racism or discrimination and see if their health is worse. That's been done. Uh, but of course, because it's correlational, we don't know which is causing which. Mm-hmm. What's neat, though, is that there are a number of different studies that have actually uh, looked tried to get the causal nature. And I, I think one of them, uh, there's a there's an 08 study by Brondolo et al. in psychosomatic medicine where what they did was have, uh, it's a pretty good sample size, 245 uh, okay. African-American uh, individuals uh, kept a daily diary for, I believe, almost two weeks. And they not only rated whether they experienced prejudice on that day or, or racism on that day, but they also had an ambulatory blood monitor that automatically measured blood pressure. Um, And what's fascinating is, and I should say they measured both uh, daytime and nighttime. And here's the key. For all of us, for normal healthy individuals, our blood pressure goes down in the night, right, when you sleep. What they found here was on days that participants had experienced racism, their nighttime uh, blood pressure actually did not drop and stayed elevated. 
And uh, just imagine if you have elevated blood pressure over time, that's not good for your heart. That's not good for a whole range of stuff. So here was this very gosh, intensively done study that's looking at this day-to-day stuff so you can actually get the temporal precedence. You know, first the racism, then the blood pressure changes, and they showed that very nicely there. So so we can get the causal nature uh, of that pretty well. Uh, earlier on, I mentioned cortisol. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and especially for those of us who have kids that don't look like everybody else, uh, really neat study done on African-American kids and white kids. And uh, they asked them, uh, this was a just fascinating study where they studied them for, I believe in this study it was 20 years. This was a 2015 psychoneuroendocrinology study by Adams et al. And what they did was they followed these kids and they looked at the kids that had experienced more discrimination. And what they found is that in kids who had experienced discrimination, there were actually higher levels of cortisol day to day. Now, all of us have spikes in cortisol when we get stressed or we're getting ready for something, but these kids, but that drops off. Mm-hmm. Uh, but these kids actually showed a higher elevated level of cortisol, putting them at high risk for stress mm-hmm. so uh, uh, and health-related issues. So, you know, there are a lot of things out there that are correlational in nature, but boy, for this particular topic, the work's been done to show that there's this causal link between the two. And I think it's important to note, too, one of the things the article pointed out is that it's not just the big instances of discrimination. Right. It was day in and day out experiences of having your sort of uh, qualifications minimized right. and things like that. Well, you know, and, and I'll give you a really recent example. I think mm-hmm. I, I, it's I think it's difficult for the average, and I'm going to go with the average white person, although I think this may happen to any person in a different group setting, because a lot of this is in group out group. Mm-hmm. But especially when we think about classic racism, classic prejudice, you know, um, I, I often joke that uh, I have anecdotal evidence that there's a direct correlation between the number of days since I've shaved and the the extent to which people think I'm Middle Eastern, right? And right. the more facial hair I have, people will guess, oh, are you from the Middle East? Mm-hmm. You know? Uh, we should mention that you are from India. Uh, I, those that's right. For those of you, right, exactly. <laughs> I am from India, so I am brown-skinned. And uh, being brown-skinned, even though, of course, once I speak, it's tougher to, to get, you know, I don't, my accent is different, but people aren't exactly sure what it is. Mm-hmm. But it's it's fascinated me that on the days that I am unshaven, which often happens during the summer when we're not teaching, you know, some people will guess that I'm Middle Eastern. And of course, there's nothing wrong with that. But as we know, there are strong prejudice about Middle Eastern folks in, right. in 2018 and 2017. And I think sometimes it's okay. I mean, I was recently at a uh, on a family trip where uh, I was at a make, you know, order your own omelet bar place. Mm-hmm. And this is really sweet. And I was a Latino cook. And I had placed my order, and I said, I'd love the biscuits and gravy, please. And he looked at me with concern, and he said, you know, there's pork in here. And I thought that's really nice of him to alert me to the fact that there's pork in there, but assuming that I'm Muslim and that I don't eat pork. So it was the, I appreciated it, okay? But so that... That those sort of things happen, obviously not a stressor. Mm-hmm. Let me give you one of uh, a stressor sort of thing. So uh, this weekend I was in the March for Lives, Washington D.C. 
right? And uh, yeah, well, I was at you D- were in DC well, already. I was I in DC already. I didn't and think about the right, fact exactly. That you were so, so the American Psych Association actually supported its members marching in the March for Lives, and yeah. uh, and so I took a break from the meeting, like many of my other meeting attendees, and we walked down to the march. And you know, uh, I will tell you that firstly, there were tons of people, but. I was standing there in the march, and I turned around, looked right into this the face of this very buff military policeman. And for a brief moment, automatically I realized I am the only brown person around mm-hmm. in that entire crowd. I mean, mind you, there were thousands. But right. right where we were standing, I was the only brown person around. And for a brief moment, and I'll just be totally genuine with what the thought was that came into my head, I thought, ooh, I wonder if they're watching for some, you know, people who are brown skin just in case of potential activity. And again, it came into my head, flashed through it. Was I concerned? No. And the guy just walked on by, so it wasn't a big deal. But the mere fact that I even had that conscious cognition right. and thought about it, obviously, for the, there was un, if I was wearing a little ambulatory blood pressure monitor, I would bet you'd see a spike in cortisol right. and systolic, you know, mm-hmm. diastolic. And the, the idea is this is, happens to some individuals all the time, every day. Mm-hmm. And that's the issue. Yeah. You know, I, I was thinking about it and as I was reading this article. I was thinking about a former supervisor of mine who was African-American. And he told me, um, this is a, uh, he was, I think it was his licensure exam or something like that, that he had passed and done very well. And, um, and he went and he told his coworkers at the, the clinic, you know, hey, I, I passed. And one of his coworkers said, oh, did they give you a hard time? And he said, no. And his coworker, who was white, said, actually his supervisor, who was white, said, um, but probably scared of an affirmative action <laughs> response or something yeah. like that. And, you know, and you think about that, you know, so here's here's my supervisor, African-American, and doesn't um, he isn't denied a job. There are there are no real, quote unquote, consequences to that statement. But you can imagine the psychological toll that sort of statement would take on a, on a person, you know, that essentially saying you aren't you right. didn't really deserve right. that success um, and minimizing that accomplishment. And then it also has you question your relationship with this coworker and right. your supervisor. What do they think of me and think of the work that I'm capable of doing based on that one simple revealing comment? Right. And I think what's, what's troubling there is I think for many individuals, it's probably something automatic that comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know for some it's, it's almost a joke, mm-hmm. right? But I think it's the realization that you may think it's a joke, you may think it's funny, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, but no, but I think I think even like the supervisor story, I mean, I don't think some people realize what those, to them, offhand little comments, mm-hmm. it's basically that reminder of, you know, I mean, do you want people who are not white to always be thinking, did I get this position or this opportunity because, right, mm-hmm. of, of my skin color, uh, right, right. Uh, relating to the affirmative action thing. And on the flip side, it's also a question of... Uh, you know, in a more general sense, it's this notion of in-group and out-group, right? Mm-hmm. So let's move away for a second and, and, and turn it around, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's a question of people not recognizing what that feels like, mm-hmm. right? And I'll give you a great example. Here in Green Bay, Wisconsin, when I teach uh, culture development and health, I have students go to uh, a grocery store of a dif- different ethnicity, right? So go to a Mexican grocery store, go to an Asian uh, grocery store. And without fail, every class a good portion of the white students will say to me, oh, it was really scary to go into that 
the mm-hmm. Mexican grocery store. And I said, really, why? And they would say, they will say, I just felt like we were being watched all the time. And this one, you know, in this one, when I went in down the aisle, the shopkeeper constantly followed me and it made me really uncomfortable. And I thought and actually say, that's how mm-hmm. people of color feel all the time. Right. And that's when the bulb goes off and he goes, oh, my God, all the time? Yeah, can you imagine if every store you go to, somebody's following you around or looking at you? That's, yep, that's how it is. That's how it is. Well, you know, so as you alluded to earlier, I have two African-American sons. Um, we have, in the last year, started taking them to a, um, a barber shop in town um, that is owned by an African-American man. And, and is this Kings? No. Oh, okay. uh, different with Stars, okay. actually. Okay. So, and, um, and they are, Chris, who owns a place that is great and takes really good care of the kids, um, who don't always love getting their haircuts, by the way. Um, but it is the one time in my life when I am the only white person in a mm-hmm. room. You know that I can think of at least, um, and and it's you know basically every three weeks we we do this, and um, it is uh, it is interesting because I do find myself stressed in those circumstances, you know, and so you think about what, like you said, you flip that around and yeah. you think about the the toll of that on someone who. Um, because I can tell you that this one instance that I have to do, it takes me an hour every three weeks, so really not a big thing in the grand scheme of my life, um, what that would be like if things are turned, and it's every situation you're in or the vast majority of situations you're in. And, and, and you know, I think previously I mentioned that health psychologists have been doing this for a long time, and I think what's actually disturbing is, you know, we've, we've just talked about examples of, of non-white people, uncomfortable amongst whites and also some examples of how white white individuals could be, you know, mm-hmm. when the tables are turned. But there's a third level here, which is racism, mm-hmm. particularly. Uh, uh, and cases of racid- racism apparently increase are stressful for everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the earliest studies that I mentioned was the, the 2001 study, uh, Carolyn Fang at, uh, in, in health psychology did a study where she had African-Americans and uh, white Americans, uh, Caucasian Americans, uh, watch TV shows, uh, three different TV shows with racism in it. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, regardless of ethnicity, everybody incre- uh, experienced increases in uh, blood pressure. Right. It stressed out everybody. It's uncomfortable, right? You know, uh, and and I think you can argue well if if a person is racist, it may not stress them out. And of course, mm-hmm. in that particular study, they didn't ask all of them, "Hey, are you racist or not?" Right. But I think it's it's really interesting to know that experiencing racism actually does influence everybody. Mm-hmm. But of course, the, it's it's exponentially higher in many cases for the people who experience it on a more regular basis. Right. So. Um, so I've got I have this other NPR article that more or less covers the same thing or something similar. I want to pull some quotes for it. Before I do, do you have any other studies you want to tell us about? Anything else? No, those are those are. I think those are three different cool studies that were were in there. Uh, there, there have been a lot of other studies where. Uh, that are more correlational in nature, mm-hmm. but uh, I didn't want to say that you can see this work. I mean, I've, I've, all my examples were African American, uh, mm-hmm. but there's also a lot of work on Native American populations and right. similar experiences. Some work on Asian American populations, mm-hmm. and then for for the psychologist psychology listeners, you're probably familiar with the term microaggressions. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's some work showing that even microaggressions are are stressful. Uh, the work there linking it to physiology isn't as established yet, but there are definitely indicators that even microaggressions or these smaller cases of, of racism can uh, 
be stressful. Right. Well, and that's, I mean, I think what it comes down to for me is that, A, once you grant the premise that discrimination exists in a variety of forms, whether, whether it's racial or, or sex-based, whatever, once you grant the premise that that exists and you grant the premise that it causes health consequences, then the findings of the research are important, but at a certain point, they're, they're less important, right? You know, you know we, we know those two things are true. And so once you know those two things are true, yeah. then it's very easy to think about the consequences on an individual and, and what that means. So around the same time uh, as that uh, New York Times article, in fact, I think actually just maybe a week in advance of that, uh, there was this uh, article in NPR, um, uh, Racism is Literally Bad for Your Health, uh, October 28th, 2017. Michelle Martin is the uh, the person interviewed here. Uh, No, excuse me, is the person who wrote this. Um, But I want to pull a couple of quotes. Not not related to me, no. Um, So one of the things they is they interview someone, a Harvard professor, David Williams. Are you familiar with David Williams? Mm-hmm. Yep, seen some stuff, yep. Okay. Um, who spent years studying all this. Um, uh, he tells NPR's Michelle Martin, basically what we have found is that discrimination is a type of stressful life experiences experience that has negative effects on health similar to other kinds of stressful experiences, right? So more or less mm-hmm. so breaking down exactly uh, what we said. Um, and I want you to, I'm going to read a couple of quotes here and see if you can um, unpack any of this any further for us. Um, one of the things he, he says that I think is really important, the research indicates it is not just the big experiences of discrimination, like being passed over for a job or not getting a promotion that someone felt they may have been entitled to, but the day-to-day little indignities affect health, being treated with less courtesy, being treated with less respect than others, receiving poor service at restaurants or stores, etc. And see, I think I think that nicely types in, uh, ties into the, the, the microaggressions part. I mean, that's I think that's exactly it. That's almost the unpacking of microaggressions right there. Can you define that for listeners? Yeah, so, so I think it, it, actually the quote really almost is an example of what microaggressions mm-hmm. are. Those little things that happen frequently that the person doing it for the most part may not even perceive it as mm-hmm. an affront. I mean, one of my classic examples of microaggressions is the is is the is the thing that many of us who don't look like the norm mm-hmm. uh, experience, which is the "Hey, where are you from?" Mm-hmm. Well, I'm from Green Bay, and I go, "No, no, 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 really, where are you from?" Uh, and it's been particularly neat for me because I've been here so darn long that most of the people I run into have been in Green Bay for less time than I have. But there's still the "No, no, but where are you from?" I'm like, no, I'm really from Green Bay. I've been here 20 years, you know. Right. Uh, but I think that, and that's a microaggression, not realizing that the hidden messages. But you look different, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, I mean, a, a really interesting microaggression. I'm sure the, the I'm pretty sure the person didn't intend this. Was the person uh, after we had a really long chat, and and this was an administrator at a university, uh, and. Uh, we had a pretty good chat, and the person says, so, that accent, is it Trini? And I didn't even know what she meant. And she meant, is it a Trinidadian accent? Oh. Right? And it was that mix yes. of, hey, I don't know what you mean. Okay, what's mm-hmm. Trini? I don't know what Trini is. You know, I don't, you know. But the whole, you know, and I, I can see what, I, I, you know, I could almost see, you know, if it was prefaced by, ooh, I think I'm pretty good with accents and years. Right. Is that from Trinidad? That would have been a whole different thing right. versus the, hey, is it a Trini accent? 
And I'm like, what's, well, no, it's not. But uh, who do you think I am? We asked Naipaul, that's another Indian guy, you know? Uh, Naipaul's a good guy. But uh, but I think that's the microaggression. It's those it's those little things that uh, the probably the, the person doing it may think is, is not a big deal, but it adds up. Right. So another thing from this article that I thought was really interesting that we haven't necessarily talked about, but I'm sure you're, you've, you've given some thought to, is that is the, the stuff that happens at the doctor's office. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that uh, they describe in the study, they say, across virtually every medical intervention, from the most simple medical treatments to the most complicated treatments, uh, blacks and other minorities receive poorer quality care than whites. African Americans who are college educated do more poorly in terms of health than whites who are college educated. And these racial differences in the quality and intensity of care persist for African Americans irrespective of the quality of insurance that they have, irrespective of their education level, irrespective of their job status, irrespective of the severity of disease. Yeah, something really big there to unpack or mention is that um, one of the most startling findings that I came across in in that context is findings that show that when you compare African American and white patients who have exactly the same diagnosis, the options of treatment offered to the African Americans are different than the options of treatment uh, offered to the whites, Hmm. right? And the options are often options that do involve less money or are less intensive. But I mean, there's this, and that's just astounding when you go, no, it's the same diagnosis. Why would you not you know, uh, and so in the health psych research, the, the the notion of health disparity is both in in treatment, and so here we talk about types of diagnosis, types of um, prescriptions for treatment, uh, types of follow up care, uh, in hospital treatment, uh, doctor patient communication. On just about every level, you see health disparities in how. Uh, individuals are treated. So yeah, that's that's a that's a huge deal. And here you go, especially when we tie it together with it being stressful. What a what a double whammy when you're right. going in for help, right? right. Uh, and it's just exa- um, accentuating the issue. Right. Yeah. And have you so you teach, have you seen similar stuff with LGBTQ? Uh, that that re, that research is a lot newer, but absolutely, uh, I think I mentioned to you sometime that uh, I'm, I'm co-editing the a new handbook on health psychology, mm-hmm. and we actually have a whole chapter, a whole chapter on uh, LGBT health, and that's exactly what you see. Okay. You know, so uh, when I looked at all those citations, they're a lot newer. The work mm-hmm. is much, much newer. Uh, transgender work is is much newer, mm-hmm. uh, but it's happening, and it's yeah. happening with with some with some, uh, yeah, with some high well, energy. And again, it goes back to the, the premise: like if discrimination hurts, yes. and we know yes. there are groups who are discriminated right. against, why wouldn't we? See so you add sexual orientation, you add right. gender, you add you know. Right. Um, So uh, I want to end with this. Uh, The article talks a little bit about how to start combating discrimination. And um, one of the things they say is much of this discrimination that occurs in the healthcare context and in other contexts may not even be intentional. And they talk about uh, unintentional discrimination or what they refer to as implicit bias or unconscious thinking discrimination. Can you talk a little bit about, you also have a background in social psych. Right, I was just going to say, time to put on the old social psych hat here. But but no, I, I think the the implicit bias is, is a big one, right? Because uh, to some extent, you know, Coming driving in this morning on NPR, you hear about the the guy who was shot the shot 
20 plus times. And I think when we talk about implicit bias, I mean, here's where there are individuals who don't realize or are non-consciously biased and unconsciously don't think so, Mm. right? So, you know, uh, tests such as the implicit attitudes tests somehow get at implicit biases using reaction time and things Mm. like that. But uh, I think it really relates to the larger notion of the fact that we have all been socialized, whether you are, you know, five, six, nine, eleven, like our kids are. I mean, I know the older, but that you know, young. If whether you're a young kid or you know you're eighteen, nineteen, twenty, or you know you're twenty nine or thirty nine, you know, uh, <laughs> right? Yeah, or whatever. Or yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I think we're all utilizing stereotypes because they're a shortcut. Okay, so I think. Key things to keep in mind are we are all utilizing stereotypes. Uh, these are automatic. They save time. Big things to keep in mind are uh, these stereotypes, even if it is an automatic thought, we don't have to stick with it. We can you know, modify it. Even if we have the thought or say something, we are conscious beings that can change that, uh, and we should. But more importantly, and what's scary is that our implicit biases, our stereotypes, our automatic processes are more likely to come to the fore when we are tired. The more cognitive load, the more stress we are under, the more stressful the situation that we're under, and think policemen responding to a call, that's stress, right? Right. So there's higher stress, there's more cognitive load on their part, uh, sort of opens the floodgates for their biases that could then influence their behavior. So in terms of, to go back to, you know, the point about what can you do about it, I I think all of us need to be okay with acknowledging that we are all prejudiced. At some level, or the, we are all prejudiced because we have been socialized to be so, mm-hmm. okay? Uh, we are. So the question is, because we all are, uh, a lot of that may be automatic, and so we've got to consciously work hard to consciously override some of that implicit bias, some of those prejudices. And I think it takes a lot of practice to extinguish some of those automatic types of behaviors, but it takes energy mm-hmm. and energy is tough and that's why especially when people are tired or stressed they're like i don't give a damn you know right. uh and i'm just gonna say it and whatever if somebody's offended they're offended but no i think we've got to think a little bit about it especially in the context of what we've been talking about right. what do you think of this in terms of being the the victim of discrimination you know for you or for others who experience uh who experience discrimination um or or prejudice what what are what are things that that they can do? You know, I think it, there are there are two completely different ways to to approach this. And I think when we talk about coping, you know, when you talk about coping, the two major categories of coping are either approach or avoidance, right? Mm-hmm. And and I think you can avoid something by that often safeguards your emotions, uh, you know, to tie on some of the work you've done with anger, just like anger, giving it some time to subside, you know, mm-hmm. moving you away from the situation, yourself from the situation, often is a good way to go. Mm-hmm. Because uh, especially with stress, like with anger to some extent, you take yourself away from the situation and it gives your body some time to readjust, all right? Uh, so on one hand, using general coping mechanisms is a good way to go. And, and when I say general, I'll be specific. Uh, anything that people do with mindfulness and meditation or even breathing, right? Take yourself away from the situation. Take, away, take yourself away from the antagonist, and give yourself some, your body some time to to get back. I think that's pretty important. I think something that I know helps me 
is, well, I'm, I'm aided by the fact that I'm an optimist. I'm an optimist, so I tend to look on the brighter side of life. I tend to give people the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they didn't mean this. And maybe they didn't, but as my wife loves to say, no, but I think they did, <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. Thank you, Martha. Uh, and I know she has a point, but I think that when I look at it, that is part of my coping mechanism to, to make a, an attribution that makes the situation less stressful. So I know I do that a lot. I will make an attribution that'll make this the, this situation less stressful, whether it's true or not. And honestly, I don't care. It makes me feel better, right? Uh, something important here too, right? And I don't know if you were going to say this, but I'm going to, you know, what what can somebody else do if they see something going right. on? And right. I think, I think, uh, observers or bystanders being quiet mm-hmm. is a problem. If somebody were to say something that was mildly racist, or not even mildly, extremely, whether it's a microaggression or something more blatant, the fact that somebody else around, whether they're white or black or whatever color, if somebody else could acknowledge and call that person to task, that's what we need to be doing more of. We too often just let things slide. And that just aggravates the issue. So if somebody were to say something to me that could potentially be interpreted as racist or sexist or any of those things, if a friend or somebody next door called the person out on that, it's tough for me to do it. Or the person in my situation, and it's not tough for me, I, I do it. But it may not be easy for everybody to do it. That's why we've got to really watch our buddies, watch our friends, watch our social networks, and don't let things like that slide. And to some extent, I'll go so far as to say, don't let it slide on Facebook. A friend of yours says something, they may not fully realize it, or they may, regardless, call them out on that. And call them out, it could be a private one-on-one message, or if you're up for it, write out up front. But if you let things slide, that's the problem. Outstanding. I think that is a good spot to end. Thank you very right. much, Regan. I really Super. appreciate you being here. Um, real quick, do you have anything else you want to plug or anything else well, you want to Well, actually, not, so not so much plug, but like any good superhero movie, uh, I want to set up the sequel. Okay. Uh, there's brand new stuff coming out that I think we all need to think about and mm-hmm. talk about, and that is we make a big deal about white, black, Asian being very similar genetically. And we make such a big deal out of genetic similarities that um, I think we are resistant to saying that certain issues may be genetically based. Mm -hmm. And just recently, work is coming out that shows that from a health and illness perspective, there are some health and illnesses that can be tied back to uh, genetic histories. So for example, and here's the teaser, right? African-Americans in the United States who have West African genes dating back 200 years have actually been found to be more at risk for certain blood pressure-related problems Mm -hmm. than African-Americans who don't have those genes. Really? Yeah, fascinating stuff. So brand new stuff. Um, That's something I'm reading up more on myself. Uh, But... Uh, it's it's just it's really fascinating to go. Okay, you know you don't have to say white and blacks are different. No, you're right. We are ninety nine point something genetically similar, but but at the level of the genome, at the level of uh, segments of genes, you can make some ties to our history. Hmm. Uh, that that you know so that that really gives is good food for thought. Very so, good. Yeah. Hey, where can people find you on Twitter? Uh, Regan A.R. Gurung on Twitter. Uh, Check out The Pedagogical Pundit online or for a whole bunch of stuff, regangurung.com.
All right. What's peda- uh, what is pedagogical? The pedagogical pundit URL. is uh, actually it is just pedagogicalpundit.com. But okay. it's on on Facebook. It's pedagogical pundit. Join, uh, follow, or like the group for a whole bunch of really good fun stuff to read all right very good thank you so much i also want to say thank you to our producer kate farley i want to say thank you to our podcast artist kimberly vlice and i want to say thank you to our intern sophie seelin who's right here keeping me on track thank you very much sophie